You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. I'm speaking today with Morton Storm, uh, who's joining us via Skype from Europe. Uh, Morton is originally from Denmark, uh, was a convert to Islam who fell into Al-Qaeda circles, um, and then through a, a personal journey, which we'll talk about a little bit, uh, came to be working with Danish, British, and American intelligence, uh, providing information on Al-Qaeda, among other things, involved in tracking down Anwar al-Awlaki. So that's the subject of our uh, conversation today, and Morton Storm, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you so much, Mark. It's absolutely a pleasure. Martin, can you tell us a little bit about your background before you became a Muslim, because you are a convert, and before you became associated with the Al-Qaeda world? I'm from a small town, small province in Denmark called Kusur. Uh, <clears throat> it's about an hour from the capital, Copenhagen. Um, uh, I was uh, a, a young boy, uh, always seeking uh, some kind of adventures in, in my life. Uh, I was not really satisfied with having that uh, the normal school, and so I, I, I was like always searching for some more uh, exciting things, uh, alternative education and and sports. During my my, my teenager years, uh, I fell into like uh, gangs and youth, you know, where you hang out with the wrong guys. Uh, in my later stage, as a, as a as an adult, young adult. Uh, I joined up with a motorcycle gang called Bandidos. So, and how did you? Uh, how did it happen that you converted to Islam? When did that happen? Well, it happened in '97 uh, when we were in the middle of the biker war between uh, Bandidos and Hell's Angels. And about how uh, old would you have been at the time? I, I was 21 when I made my indefinite uh, choice to to convert to Islam. Okay, go ahead. Um, uh, doing that, uh, I, I, we stayed for two years. Uh, I participated two years in the biker war between Hells Angels and Bandidos in the Scandinavian biker war. And um, well, I was I was fed up of life, and I knew it was not the right path. Uh, I then decided to maybe look into religions, and uh, and that's where I went secretly uh, without telling my friends to library in in my town. Uh, it's a public library, and I read. Uh, I picked up a few books about other religions, but Islam was the uh, was what actually attracted me. And I read the biography of Prophet Muhammad, uh, and that book actually um, uh, guided me to Islam. 
it made me choose the decision. Uh, and, and then I, I I would then go a couple of times to the mosque, uh, which I feel quite uh, I felt so happy about it. I feel like released and purified from from, from all the bad stuff I used to do in the week. Um, <clears throat> later on, I uh, it there was actually actually the same day as Mike Tyson boxed against. Holyfield, where you know Holyfield, uh, Mike Tyson bit his ear. That was the day I got arrested and uh, put in custody. Uh, for well, they 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 put me in, in uh, what you call in, in remand for ten days, uh, doing an investigation. And later on, found out I was not guilty of what they accused me of. But in that period, I decided uh, I'm going to be a Muslim now, and I will definitely change my life and uh, and move on uh, because I saw. The life I lived in was not the right, the right path for me, uh, and Islam gave me uh, gave me some answers, gave me some hope, um, which it does it does really. Uh, it's it's totalitarian religion, uh, which means everything is uh, it's written down for you. You don't uh, the way you use the toilet, the way you eat, the way you greet people. So everything is comprehensive here. It's it provides a lot of answers. A lot of answers. And that's, I think, what we're looking for. And at the same time, we also provide a, a brotherhood, a family for you. And once you embrace Islam, once you convert to Islam, you are now a member of a, of a family of 1.6 billion Muslims you know, around the world. So, um, so, yeah, it gave you some kind of identity as well. Now, and you, security, yeah. you, you were not initially a, a radical, somebody who uh, associated with terrorists. How did... How did that evolution happen that you started to fall into more and more radical circles? I understand that early on, uh, fairly early on, you met people who later became very well-known, like Zacharias Musawi, the so-called 20th hijacker, uh, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. I assume these weren't the first Muslims you met. How did you get into that yeah. world? You see, Mark, the, the first stage is that people embrace Islam. That's the first, uh, you know, you declare your faith is when you convert to Islam. Uh, after you've done that, you learn how to pray uh, you, you learn the pillars, uh, the five pillars of Islam and the six pillars of faith. It's called Al Iman. Uh, and once you 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 learn this, uh, you start to move on. Uh, what happened to me? I was uh, uh, just uh, a normal guy, uh, happy to have found a new religion, happy to pray and you know find the answer of, of my all my questions. Uh, I then later on move on to uh, I moved to UK, United Kingdom. Uh, I lived there for a little while and uh, for about two months. Uh, before I, I, I lived, I, I moved to Yemen. I traveled to Yemen in '97 and studied Islam over there, uh, in actually in the north of Yemen, in Saada. Uh, it's also a place, uh, a camp called Ad Damaj. Damaj is a, is, was a very known place for Salafis. Uh, basically, the uh, Salafis are quite a fundamentalistic uh, branch within the Sunni Muslims, Sunni Islam. Um, I studied there for about nine months uh, in Yemen, uh, and during that time, uh, I built up a huge network. Uh, also, due to my nature um, of, of the background where I come from, from a biker background, from uh, you know boxing and all that, so we had a lot of common with other converts that I met from America, from Sweden, from well, all over Europe and, and, and even a uh, Indonesia and all those places. There was a lot of things in common with us. There was training, boxing, there was some of them were quite uh, criminal backgrounds from uh, uh, from America. Was, a lot of those converts were ex-convicts, uh, you know. So there was a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, and amongst that topic was jihad, you know. 
uh, jihad was is a part of Islam, uh, which is actually the most noble act that you can commit within Islam. Is if you do perform jihad, it's it's the most rewarded. If you want to be guaranteed guaranteed paradise, um, so jihad became a part of our to topics, uh, but not the main drive yet. That came later on. Now in the but, go ahead. Yeah. See that that came later on. What the main drive was was actually to uh, to learn about the faith, to become more certain and more convinced that Islam was the truth, and any questions you had will be answered through the Hadith or the Quran or you know and so forth. Um, and also, you could ask the scholars, so everything made sense. Now, in um, the summer of 2001, uh, I understand you almost went to Afghanistan, this being the summer just before September 11th and then the, the American uh, invasion of Afghanistan. Yeah. What, you, you see, what happened? You, you see, in, in 99, just before the new year of 2000, uh, we, um, uh, Russia, Russia invaded Chechnya again, grossly. Uh, during that time, that's when I met Zakaria Musawi. I met Richard Reed, the shoe bomber. Uh, we were praying in the same mosque in Brixton, in London, um, uh, and that's uh, it's a Salafi mosque. Uh, so we we were quite frustrated that uh, during this invasion, that our imam in the local mosque, our sheikh, the one who prayed for with us uh, or lead the prayer in the Ramadan, did not uh, supplicate or pray for our brothers in Chechnya. It quite made people question if that branch we were on was the correct path because jihad as uh, is prescribed in the Quran and the commands of uh, of uh, of practicing jihad and, and doing making jihad against the infidels once the, you've been invited is is very clear in in Islam uh, and um, and that's what we saw that there was something wrong Zakaria Musawi was very upset about but people were not praying for them uh, and I used to come and visit him uh, with my uh, uh, with our mutual friends and in his flat in London. Um, but anyway, then uh, we we moved into 2000. Uh, I went back to Denmark. I served some time for the last time. Uh, I had something outstanding with the Danish government. I had a five to three guys. I have to go. Back. I got six months for it, so I had to go back and do that uh, sentence. When I came out. Uh, just before 9-11, I decided to move on to, to Yemen to study more Islam. And I just got married to my Moroccan wife at that time, the mother of my three children. Um, uh, basically, because of my network in Yemen before, uh, from the previous day, uh, I, I, I was now connected to the right people. And one of them was the courier of Osama bin Laden. The other ones were people who traveled regularly between Afghanistan, Pakistan, and, and Yemen. So I know some of them asked me if I was interested to, to travel to, to Afghanistan and, and meet Osama bin Laden. Uh, I said yes. Um, so the, one of the messengers, well, his personal messenger, uh, went to Afghanistan and, and spoke to Osama bin Laden and, and also had, um, what do you call it? Uh, I got the personal invitation of him, but that was about two months before 9/11. Uh, I, I, well, the, I was go I was going to, at that time. There was no issues with 9/11, uh, Islamic terrorists, or so there wasn't a big issue. In fact, many uh, many Muslims who are non-terrorists or who do not so support Al Qaeda have been to Afghanistan and in the very same training camps. 
So, um, and without being under the radars or without being in troubles with the government. At that time, it wasn't an issue. It was only after 9-11. So you were invited, but you didn't actually go to Afghanistan. No. Why, why didn't you go? I didn't go because that Osama wanted me to take my family, bring my family with me. My wife at that time was pregnant uh, uh, with my firstborn son. So uh, she was, she's pregnant. She was pregnant at that time. And I told, I told the messenger, I said, listen, I, I can't. I can't uh, join you guys uh, if I have to bring my wife. I, I need her to stay in Yemen, and then I will travel first and see how the country is. But they wanted me to migrate to make hijra. It's called hijra when you migrate, um, and uh, that was what he um, he 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 needed for me. So um, so you and I, I refused obviously, and and after I had a reply from them saying, well, if you're not bringing your family, you can't come. So you came back to Europe in 2002. Did you find that Al-Qaeda had a strong presence uh, in the United Kingdom, in Denmark? So we're after 9-11 now, and Al-Qaeda is on the front page of all the newspapers. Were they a strong presence in Europe when you came back? Well, there was a lot of supporters. There was those who were actively supporting by collecting money or propagating it, uh, you know, the jihad against America. Uh, that was obviously propagated uh, in the mosque and private houses and gatherings. Uh, in fact, I have to tell you, Mark, that many Muslims did not see the invasion um, of Afghanistan to be a, a war against Al-Qaeda. They, they saw it as being an invasion against Islam. So, and, and the same happened in 2003 when you invaded Iraq. There was also an, an attack on Islam. So basically, most of the Muslims in, in Europe were supporting Al-Qaeda. Not for because that they hit the towers in, in you know, Twin Towers or Pentagon. No, for the simple fact that our Muslim country have been invaded, i.e. we need to support our Muslim brothers and sisters. So that's why, that's why uh, in general, the, the support was for Al-Qaeda and, and like-minded people. Now, some, sometime during this period, you had your first contact with British intelligence uh, MI5 the domestic British intelligence service. How did that happen? Well, that happened first time in 2005. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but that happened when uh, I used to hang out with this group called, at that time, called Al-Muhajirun. Uh, that group was uh, leaded by, um, uh, what is his name, Omar Bakari. Uh, he's also known as the, uh, the Ayatollah of Tottenham. Omar Bakari is currently living in Lebanon, in Tripoli. Uh, I became at that time what you call a radical Muslim. I, I don't use that term. I use it as fundamentalistic Muslim. I became more practicing. I I, I started to practice more what I read, uh, in the textual, in the religious books, and um, and we used to be in this group called Al Muhajirun, uh, which was very known and and uh, infamous in the United United Kingdom. Um, Omar Bakari would encourage us to go for demonstrations, anti-American uh, demonstrations, or interrupt uh, elections, local elections, uh, uh, where we live in Luton or London. Or, uh, and I, I was at that time also appointed to be the uh, the guy in charge of training for for the group, so all the the young guys. So we will have like military training, boxing training up in the hills. Uh, in UK, we will. Uh, we'll have our lectures, weekly lectures, and yeah, so I, I became more and more radicalized or practicing Muslim at that time. Is that why MI5 came to see you? Yeah, uh, I had a knock one day on my door and uh, MI5 turned up 
basically what they were offering me uh, they were offering me to cooperate with them to to work for them and i declined that because i uh, i did not believe that you as a muslim can help the disbelievers against your own brothers even though they might be wrong but it's a matter of loyalty uh, within the creed in islam now when did you first meet anwar al alaki uh an american uh, Islamic scholar who later became very famous as a as a member of uh, a senior member of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. You came to know him sometime during this period, I believe. How yes. did that happen? Yeah, I met Anwar in the beginning of 2006, in January, I think. Uh, yes, late January 2006. I met Anwar Al and uh, we became friends. I, I met him in his house, in his father's house in Sanaa, and. Um, I met him with, uh, in fact, I was invited for, for a lunch, for a meal, well, to eat lunch, you know, that's the main meal in Yemen, is, is the lunch, lunch time. So I met Anwar, uh, and his, actually his son was there, Abdurrahman, the one who also later on got killed, unfortunately. But, um, uh, yeah, so I, I met Anwar there with a lot of radical Muslims. What kind of man was Anwar al-Awlaki? He was very cheerful. He was a very open person, uh, he was very honest, uh, he will not lie to you, he will tell you uh, exactly the way he looked at the world and he will tell you his opinions based on the, uh, on the Quranic verses or Hadith uh, and so forth. Um, yeah, he was a devoted family father, a family a husband as well and a father, uh, I saw that. Uh, and I know as a fact that he was quite relaxed and leaned uh, with his wives. Um, uh, but, uh, but the other personality was also that he was a man with some plans. Uh, and uh, those plans was to establish the Islamic State in Yemen, uh, beginning in, in Abiyan. Now, you had already at this point turned down one approach from British intelligence. Um, and sometime in here, you're also contacted then by the Danish intelligence service, uh, PET. Uh, how did that happen and what did they want from you? Well, that happened, uh, that happened about a year later, uh, maybe a little bit less than a year. But it happened after, uh, I was in, um, as you know, I was in Yemen, I was in in quite a lot of contact with Anwar, we were in contact with the people in, in Somalia at that time, the Islamic courts, the Islamic uh, Union courts were trying to establish Islamic uh, Emirates in, uh, in Somalia and they were trying to fight uh, Abdullah Yusuf at that time, uh, the current uh, president over there. So yeah, so we were always in touch and that obviously created a lot of intention from, from the American government, from the Western governments as well. And I was studying in Al-Iman University, uh, which was Islamic university owned by uh, uh, Sheikh al Abdul Majid al This man, he was very known and wanted by the Americans. Um, during my stay in Yemen, I, I spent time with, uh, uh, well, I studied with... Uh, Mustafa Anwar, uh, Jihad, he's, a, he's an American national, now wanted uh, on the FBI most wanted list, your terrorist list. He's in Somalia now. Anyway, um, a group, when I traveled to Denmark, uh, I traveled, I, I got married in Yemen, my second marriage in Yemen, and um, I had to travel to Denmark to work. I worked with a bricklayer, a friend of mine who had a company who, who built houses. And he offered me a job so I could save some money and then move on to Somalia, where they were trying to establish the Islamic State. 
so I, I left my wife and kids in the, uh, in, in Yemen, um, traveled to Denmark for a couple of months, worked there, and then discovered that most of my friends in Yemen were arrested, trying, apparently they were accused of sending, uh, creating a small Al-Qaeda cell uh, in Yemen, and then sending weapons to Somalia. Uh, some of it were true, but I wasn't a part of that. I, I could have said that now if it was. I wasn't. Uh, I, yes, they were my associates, but I was not a part of uh, of what that group had planned. Um, they all got arrested. I went to the Danish TV media because of my connection with some journalists and uh, put a lot of pressure on the Danish government to to try to solve the problem with those guys. And if it, it um, it resulted in them all of them being released with no charges. And so, the and the Danish service contacted you while you were in Denmark for these couple of yeah. months. Yeah, yeah. I had a phone call one day, and uh, the guys say, "Well, Mo, are you Murad Stone?" That was my Muslim name. I said, "Yes, I am." They say, um, "I'm my name is Klang. I cannot tell you his name now because my name is Klang. I'm from the Danish intelligence. Could we meet?" I told him, uh, I, don't know who, I don't know who you are, why should I meet with you? I'm you just get my, how do you get my number? He said, that's very easy for us to get your number. And uh, he, he suggested we should meet in a, in a hotel to have a little chat. I told him, no, I, I think maybe you're from the CIA or are you, maybe you could be Mossad. I said, I suggest you come to the mosque and meet me there. So we, we, were, not, we were not actually trying to find any terms between us or or like agreements where we could meet up. But I uh, I went back to the mosque and uh, told everyone that I had this approach. Uh, and they say, well, uh, they thought that it would be a good idea for me to speak to the intelligence, but to make an appointment at the local police station in case they were not CIA and, you know, to prove that they're not trying to kidnap you or send you to Guantanamo. So, yeah, I was... Um, uh, it happened that I met the guys in the Danish, uh, in Aarhus, it's the, like the second capital of Denmark. We met the Danish PET there, and um, we had a chat uh, about, you know, political views, and obviously they say we're very concerned about you and your contacts and your network. Uh, first, they tried to recruit me as well, and I, again, declined that. Um, because I was a practicing Muslim, you, you can't ally yourself with the disbelievers in the Quran, it's, uh, it's, clear, it's very clearly states that whoever this who allies with them is uh, amongst them. So, which would mean that I would be apostate if I allied or helped the, the disbelievers. Um, so, But I, I told the guys, uh, you know, listen, I want to go to Somalia, I have no intention of making any terrorism anyway. I mean, my family were all Christians, why should I kill them? I mean, so... Uh, but I was definitely willing to go to Somalia to fight against the uh, current government there. And you, in fact, tried to go to Somalia, but you failed. And that was a major turning point in your life. Can you tell me yeah. about that? Well, the, 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 it was probably the, the biggest blow um, to my faith ever. Uh, I was so keen on going to Somalia because jihad, as I just said before, is the highest. There, are, there is nothing in Islam higher than jihad. And whoever dies is a martyr. Uh, you know, you go straight to paradise with no account. You know, you do, no one is, you will never be held account to any of your bad deeds. Um, so, obviously for every Muslim that is the highest achievement to die as a martyr and fighting for the sake of Islam, for the sake of Allah. 
Um, so on my way, um, I had both of my friends. One of them was this American Jihad Mustafa, who's now wanted uh, in America. But one of uh, they were all they all traveled to to Somalia. They all they were all engaged in the fighting against the Ethiopians and and also the um, at that time that current government lead uh, ruled by Abdullah Yusuf. Uh, so for me, I, I went to Copenhagen to buy a lot of army equipment like clothes and water purification systems, you know, like uh, backpacks and all that rucksacks. Uh, and then um, I spent a lot of money there. I collected money. I was prepared myself mentally as well to leave. I said goodbye to all my family, my my friends in Denmark, and my my, my wife and, and kids, and um, never expect to return. Uh, I think a day uh, on my way back from Copenhagen, uh, that was about one or two days before I had to travel to Mogadishu. Uh, I had a phone call uh, from Mogadishu saying, Murad, uh, we have just lost the airport to the Ethiopians. You you can't come. You have to cancel the, your trip. You'll be in trouble. So uh, I was so devastated. I was so devastated not being able to travel there that I, I went home with all my shopping gear for all my gear that I bought in that in that army store. Uh, I went home and uh, looked into the laptop and and on Google and just typed contradictions in the Quran. Contradictions was, in the Quran. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> and and I found a website. I don't know why I did it. It was just like, I think I, I guess I was asking why I have to be stopped. Why are you stopping me to performing what is most noble in your eyes? I was talking to Allah and myself. You know, what? Why? What is it that I'm being prevented to do this good deed? And then uh, search the contradictions. Uh, uh, to my big surprise. I saw a lot of conditions. I saw a website, I think it's called answeringislam.org. Uh, I went into that uh, and found hundreds and hundreds of contradictions. And you know, as a Muslim, you cannot question the Quran. You cannot question Allah. I mean, if you do that, it's called hidden disbelief or hidden hypocrisy. Yeah? So. Uh, so oh, it's called as a nifaq al-badniya, like hidden hypocrisy, which is is one of the nullifiers of your of your of your faith. And uh, I was I start to search one to like research some of the contradictions to see maybe that website was more uh, biased and you know because maybe they were they had a Christian uh, uh, what do you call agendas to spread Christianity and then. But anyway, I, I searched the the contradictions and uh, you know uh, looked up the references in the Quran and the Hadith and you know they were all right. They were actually all true, you know, and uh, it just wiped away my faith. So this led to you meeting again with PET with the Danish intelligence service and and really changing your life again. I called them and I, go ahead. The, um, I, I told the, his name is Clown. I told him Clown. Uh, I'm it's Muhat Storm, and uh, I would like to meet you guys in the hotel now, no longer in the police station. <laughs> so they said, "All right, they were really so excited." I said, "I need to tell you something." So we uh, we met up in the uh, in the uh, it's called uh, Radisson Hotel uh, in 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 Aarhus. Um, we met up there. 
And I remember when we sat in this king suite, uh, you know, president suite room, they trying to impress me with the menus and, you know, like being very nice to me. You know, that, the good, sometimes you have the good and the bad cough. But in my situation, I only had the good and the good cough. There's only, both of them were very nice. Uh, but at the same time, they were very curious of why I would ask them to meet up. So they were like, they didn't know how to handle me. I saw that. Uh, and then one of them would say, you know, let's have some food. And he took out the menu card and said, uh, Murad, would you like to eat? Um, he called me my Muslim name out of respect, not to insult me. That's how much he respected me, even though my real name is Morden Storm, even in Denmark. But he said, Murad, uh, would you like to eat something? We have fish on the menu, there's vegetarian food, because it's non-halal, you know. I said, you know what, guys? I want something with bacon and, and pig in it, yeah? I want bacon and then I want a beer. <laughs> and then he looked at me. They were like, they looked at each other, they were not sure if I made a joke. I said, guys, listen, I want something with bacon and then I want a beer. I told them, please, I'm no longer Muslim. That's why I came to tell you. And they were like, high five. And I said, listen, guys, I'm ready to fight this ideology. I'm ready to fight these people. If we can prevent terrorism, let's do it. Let's go for it. And we were high five, hugging each other. It was like, they couldn't believe it. They were so joyful. And for me, I remember this like yesterday. And I tell you what, one thing, I might see, I might have this follow-up in some disagreement with the Danish intelligence, but at the end of the day, is we have achieved so much. I mean, I remember Klang, he told me that time, the same night, he said, Mort, he said, Mort, this is going to be the biggest, this is going to be so big, he told me. And uh, we never imagined it to become that big as it is now. Well, what did Danish intelligence ask you to do? Now that you'd agreed to cooperate with them. Yes, the Danish intelligence asked, they didn't really ask me to do much because they gave me more uh, freedom to do whatever I like. However, they tested me. They gave me a phone. I knew that was blocked. Uh, they sent me to a couple of guys in Denmark to find out about them. They probably worked for them to find out if I was truthful or not, if I could you know, be loyal. Uh, what they didn't understand was that <clears throat> I was loyal because I was convinced that what I did is, was the correct thing to do, uh, morally, for anyone. And I was not politically motivated, nor was I motivated by any religion. Uh, my motivation was to stop ter terrorism. That was the only thing I did. Now, <clears throat> uh, our listeners will want, to, uh, will want to know, so please forgive me for asking, were they paying you money as well? They were paying me just a little bit because we agreed just for, to cover the cost of my bills. Uh, that was my most concern. I wasn't, um, I wasn't there for the money mark because it was for me something I believed in. I had an, an I, I, I had a buzz. Uh, what do you call it? I, I uh, a buzz. I sure. Became high on on doing the job because I loved it. Yeah. Now, PET arranged meetings then with uh, British intelligence, MI5 and MI6, and I believe later with the CIA as well. How did all of that happen? The first meeting I had with the MI5 and 6 was my return uh, from, from Lebanon in 2007. I went to Lebanon to Tripoli to visit Omar Bakari, the leader of Muhajirun. <clears throat> Uh, during my stay in, uh, in Lebanon, I met also with Fatal Islam 
Fatal Islam was you know the terrorist organization who launched the attack against the Lebanese government in 2007. The war lasted for about three months and had about a thousand people killed. Um, yeah, I was with those guys. And if guys. I can interrupt, presumably you provided information about those things back to Danish I intelligence. I did actually. I actually, uh, once I spent time, I drove around in, in Tripoli with two suicide bombers, Saddam al Hajjib. Uh, and uh, and his uh, driver, it was quite uh, disturbing to to sit in a car with two suicide bombers. Well, they had the blow the, the explosive vest on, and um, and then and they told me you know just trying to establish the Islamic State in Lebanon in Nahr Barrett refugee camp, and uh, that was my first international uh, mission. Uh, I was very sure that I had some good information and requested to meet the Danish in London. We met in 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 High Park in region uh, in High Park in London uh, in the Churchill Hotel. And at that time, when I came back, I told them, "Hey, I've been with Fatah Islam, and you know they're saying they're going to start a war soon, probably within very few weeks." Uh, they say, "Well, we had some people here. If you want to meet them from the MI5 and uh, MI6." And we agreed. I said, yeah, just let me see them. And uh, that was my first meeting with the MI5 and 6. I obviously told them, I predicted the the war will happen in, in Lebanon. And they were like a bit skeptical about it because at the time Lebanon was quite stable. Nobody expected uh, uh, a war there. But it happened. I told them about it will happen from one month to three months. And it happened about eight weeks later or something. So... Um, you also went on some training with MI6. Why and what were they training you to do? Yeah, I was I, I was trained. Um, I, well, in the beginning, I was trained by MI5 okay. in counter, counter and anti surveillance. Uh, I, I was trained uh, at different various places in UK. Uh, I was trained uh, in Fort Moncton by the MI6. Fort Moncton is uh, is in Portsmouth. It's the MI6 training center. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was trained in role plays and uh, yeah, I, I was trained in survival training of, of in the Inverness and you know different places. It, it was it was quite interesting stuff. When did you first meet officers from the CIA? I, I met them uh, the same year, in 2007, in Copenhagen. In the, and also in Radisson, no, it's a SAS hotel in uh, in Copenhagen, and I met uh, apparently what I've been told. Her name was Amanda. She was the one who got later on was killed in Khost in Afghanistan. I think but she's she, publicly known now as Jennifer Matthews. I believe. Yeah, yeah. I met with two guys from. At first, I had my my normal meetings with the PET in Copenhagen. They told me, "Well, we have our counterparts, colleagues from America. Would you like to meet with them?" And I said, "Yes." Uh, why not? I met already with the British, so why couldn't I meet with the Americans? Um, and Amanda and Joshua, Josh, he called himself, uh, came to uh, to see me there. And um, well, they were quite interested in what uh, with Anwar as well, and you know that cell I was with in, in Yemen and Lebanon, my Lebanon trip. So, but it was like a casual meeting in the beginning, uh, and then later on became more regular. And what did the CIA want from you? I know that they uh, they became interested in uh, Al Laki. Was that their main focus from the beginning, or no? Uh, it wasn't the main focus, but uh, but he was an American national, and obviously I spent time with him. Uh, they they were not asking a lot of stuff about him. 
I did tell them that this guy he will become quite radical uh, in the future, uh, but um, but the most concern for them at that time was I think they, they were very interested in Lebanon and they were interested in Somalia as well, um, uh, and that's and just generally to know about the people I knew in Yemen just to build up uh, so they had like an understanding of my network. Um, I, I then later on met Amanda and Joshua again in in Amsterdam. Um, and at some point, though, American intelligence, the CIA, did ask you to help track down Alaki. Yes, it was. But, you know, before that, we, we were quite busy in Somalia to send equipment down there because of uh, Nabhan, Salim Nabhan. He was the one who blew up the American embassies in 98 in East Africa. So we were working quite intensive on that to deliver equipment to get him stopped. And that happened successfully in 2010. Okay. Um, turning, though, to Al-Laki, uh, how did they want to, what sort of information did they want about Al-Laki? Uh, how did they want you to help track down Al-Laki? See, the more and more Al-Laki got his freedom in Yemen, uh, the more he felt safe after being released from prison, the more he talked. Uh, in, 90, in 2008, I established the first contact from my house, well, from my mobile phone, between Anwar al-Awlaqi and uh, his name is Ahmed Wasami, Abdul Qadir Wasami, who's now in prison in New York. That was the first establishment between Al-Shabaab and, and, and AQAP. And that happened in, in because of my work there. Um, Anwar was very keen of getting uh, a, a worldwide network, uh, obviously with the intent of to establish jihad in, in Yemen. Uh, and that was the main goal for him. Uh, later on, he changed and became more radical. Well, became more ex- ex- not extreme, but became more um, uh, angry with America. Or and maybe um, uh, he he was so focused on maybe having revenge uh, on the American soil by killing uh, innocent people. And I found out about this, and I was quite. Uh, sad that he will do this because um, when you meet Anwar when you sit with him you do not see a person who is willing to take an innocent person's life uh, but he was and that was the most disturbing thing in him uh, and, and and not only that he was he was that good at convincing people that you know the guy he needs to be warned against so I started to warn the Americans about him and say you know I think we have an issue with this guy and only until 90, 2009 that they were not really interested in him until Abdul Muttalib, the, the underpan bomb, started to do something. And that was actually first when the Americans started to become more interested in him. Did it, uh, so you had come to know Awlaki pretty well. Uh, I mean, perhaps even it would be fair to say knew him as a friend. Did hmm. it bother you that as time went on that you were providing information about this man with whom you had a friendly relationship to the CIA, that in some sense, forgive me, mm. you were betraying Al-Laki? That, that's right. Uh, it, it was difficult. But at the same time, I was no longer Murad. I was Morton. Um, I, I didn't believe in, in what I used to believe when I knew him. And had he known that I was not a Muslim, he would have done his best to kill me or had me killed. So at the end of the days, I did it because of work. I did it because I, uh, I, I needed to find out about this guy and uh, uh, to infiltrate that organization in Yemen. Uh, it, it is hard because you do develop 
you know, relationships, good personal relationship with the people. It, the, the hardest thing is that when you know the families, yeah. as for Anwar, that's his path, he chose it himself. As for his children, as for his wives, you know what, it's quite hard for them. And that's what actually hurts me. Well, At one point, Alaki asked you to help him get another wife. Can you tell that story? You were well, successful, that, in fact. Yeah, uh, that was uh, my last trip. I, I met him physically in, in Yemen, and that was just before Abdul Muttalib. At that time, Abdul Muttalib was actually preparing his underpants in Yemen. So, uh, uh, but anyway, I met with Anwar, uh, and we uh, we had a, he told me how to use the Mujahideen secret, this cool, cool, encrypted system that Al Qaeda is using to communicate uh, amongst themselves. Um, he told me how to use it and obviously requested some money from the West and asked for me to arrange the brothers from the West to do training and, and then to return back to Europe. So that's when I knew that Anwar is intending to target civilian soft targets. Uh, but um, at the same time, it just slipped out from him. And, you know, if you know any sisters in the West who is willing to... Uh, to or want to get married and make hijrah migrate. Uh, I'm very interesting then, and he obviously he preferred white, so uh, a white convert. And uh, and to my big luck, uh, and to all of our luck in the West and the whole world is that uh, later on, I think it was December, I managed to get approached. Well, I managed to find Amina, who I believe did go on to marry him, didn't she? That's right. She went in 2010 and married him. Now, this led to a big cash payment for you. It did. Um, it did. But it, it, the money was, you know, as I said, uh, it was some kind of curse as well. Because, you know, it was, it's okay, it's fun to be paid that money, but in the end of the day, it's, it's blood money. You know, like, there's blood in them. You so know. let's be clear. You, this, this was not money from Alaki. This was money from the intelligence service. Uh, that was money from the from the American intelligence from CIA. Uh, that was paid in a suitcase to me uh, in Co in Copenhagen. And what so was the combination the, on the suitcase lock? Well, the, uh, his name is George, the one who who, who handed over the uh, uh, the one who handed over the the suitcase. He told me, Morton, guess he said, guess guess the combination. I told him, I, I don't know. How would I know? He said, try 007. And I did, and, uh, you know, both it clicked and it opened up, and, you know, I had a suitcase full of dollars. It was quite uh, shocking, you know, but a good feeling. You know, it was a good feeling. So I, I'm not going to complain about it. So during this period, you're working with the CIA to provide information about Alaki, but the British service, the MI6, was not very happy about this. Am I right? Yeah, you see, from the time of 2009, when Amina and I, we start to communicate together, Amina is the woman who became his wife, uh, <clears throat> in, when we started to communicate, the British was a bit upset because, uh, first of all, America, uh, Anwar, he was uh, American national, so it, was, it would have been automatically a CIA project. Not only that, uh, it would also lead to the killing of Anwar, because now Obama had Issued a, a death, uh, what do you call it? Um, a permission, yeah. yeah, death sentence to him. Um, 
the British uh, several times tried to convince me not to work with the Americans by saying, you know, they give me a team building trip to the ice hotel in Sweden. We, and then the, uh, when the American found out about that, they say, well, let me let us give you a team building course as well. So they sent us to Reykjavik, up in in um, in Iceland. Yeah. So that was like a clash between the British and Americans. Uh, uh, Regarding who I was supposed to work with or not, the British says well, don't work with the Americans because you know um, they will cheat you one day. And the British say we do not involve ourselves in the killings, you know, of civilian targets. So we have to pull out. If you if you decide to work with the Americans, we are pulling out from this. Did MI6 in fact stop working with you? Yes, they did. Uh, they pulled out in in uh, 2010. Now, in 2011, the CIA came up with a new plan to use you to get Alaki. What was that, and did it work? Mm. It worked, yeah. Well, uh, between the time I've been paid my money, the two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars, the CIA decided to pull out and, and to do their own uh, hunt of Anwar. It wasn't successful because, uh, first of all, our our mission with Amina to get her down there with a suitcase with tracking device in or other objects with tra uh, tracking device in, it was a failure because when she arrived into Yemen, Anwar told her to only bring with her what could be in two plastic bags. And that was against all of our expectations. We were quite shocked, all of us. We didn't know that. So what happened was we, um, uh, the CIA was quite upset about it and decided to go their own way. And I was okay with that because at that time I needed a break so I was in in East Africa working on the Somalis over there uh, to build up a more network after Silent Abraham had been killed um, so we um, we were actually just focusing on, 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 on East Africa and also to build up my co undercover company Storm Bushcraft and Storm Outdoors uh, to, to make like a more better excuse for me to work and operate different places and, and be able to travel around. Um, uh, well, and I had a message a few months later asking me to come to come back to Denmark and and have a meeting. The Americans wanted to see me, so we returned back to to Denmark. Me and uh, well, the Danish intelligence, and uh, I was asked if because they lost the track of Anwar in 2011. They asked me, "Could you help us tracking him? You know, help us to find him again uh, and establish contact?" I said, "Yeah, I don't mind." And I did that in over a couple of months, um, even to the last. You know uh, what I did? I created contact via uh, uh, some of uh, Anwar's associates in Aden, uh, in 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 Abian. His name is uh, his name is Adil Abab. He's the religious leader of AQAP. Or Ansar Sharia, he's dead now. He just got killed uh, this year. Um, uh, anyway, I had sent via uh, I sent a USB stick with a new message saying, "Anwar, you know, brother, I'm here in in, in Yemen, and um, uh, please let us communicate over uh, using this uh, messenger." Uh, so that's what we did. We used messengers between us, and obviously, I bought four USB sticks that I gave to the CIA. So they could modify them or or do whatever they I don't know what they have done. Uh, that's only CIA who knows that. Uh, anyway, it, it was it was so keen that um, and so intense intense that they say that you know uh, you know Obama is you know actually following this mission and it is so important we need to get this guy stopped as soon as possible. Um, the last 
Uh, I, I stayed in Yemen for a few times. I had meetings in Spain with the CIA and the Danish intelligence. Uh, you know, we had some equipment. Anwar was sending me a shopping list for his wife, and you know, we tried to find how well we can how we can modify some of that shopping list and so forth. Um, it was on, only uh, about three weeks. Uh, what happened? My last trip in Yemen was uh, that I established. Anwar asked me to find out about the attack that New York Times wrote about. This we seen the poison attack, and he asked me if I could find out about uh, any information and send it to him. So that's when we knew that Anwar was. It was so close for them to succeed in a poison attack or or a mass uh, what would you call a mass murder. Uh, attack in the US, so it, it had to be stopped, it had, this guy had to be stopped by any means. Uh, I was in Yemen and uh, had to travel to Borneo in Malaysia for, for a trip, I was part of my undercover company and I was traveling with a friend of mine, uh, I told the guys, you know what, I have to go to, to Malaysia, but I will leave the last message, the last flash stick, a USB stick, I'm going to leave it with a very close associate of mine who also knew Anwar. And uh, by that time, by that you can monitor when this money means that young Curry is going to come pick up the, the USB stick and you can track him this way. So um, uh, I didn't know that he was going to get killed a few weeks later. It was, uh, Al-Waki was in fact killed on September 30th, I believe, in 2011 yeah. in a U.S. drone strike. Yeah. Um, and you had gotten the CIA very close to Al-Laki, uh, mm. but the CIA didn't give you credit for this, despite the fact, I guess, there was an enormous reward out yeah. for Al-Laki's head. What, what happened? You see, I was promised $5 million, uh, but that was not CIA who promised me that. I have to be very clear and I have to be very just in this matter because many newspapers said CIA promised me $5 million. No, it was the Danish government who promised me $5 million. Uh, for helping the Americans to track Anwar down. Um, and you never got that money? I never got paid that money. Uh, CIA, and I'll tell you why later, I will tell you that uh, why, why I think it didn't happen. Uh, first of all, we know uh, from a Western intelligence officer, the 2nd of October 2011, uh, made a public statement uh, to the t Sun Sunday Telegraph about how they tracked down Anwar al-Awlaki. And they mentioned the young courier who was picked up like three weeks before his killing, his death. Uh, they forced him to cooperate with him, uh, with the CIA, and helped him to track him down. So basically, yes, it was not my, my final words who helped the CIA, but it was my work who helped the CIA to get him. Uh, obviously, I, 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 I staged the, the courier. Uh, it was confirmed that he came to pick up the USB stick. My associate in Yemen even told me I have the messages in down to dates, uh, so it was very clear that it was my mission and my work. But you see, Mark, the problem is that Denmark, the Danish intelligence, have involved themselves uh, in activities which was against the Danish constitution, the Danish, the Danish law. So there was no way that they could give me the credit for it. There was no way they could pay me that money for the death of Anwar. That would have, uh, if if that happened, it would have been a liability. That money, it would have been a proof that, you know, uh, the Danish government had been involved in killing civilian targets abroad, and that's illegal. Which also means that Jakob Schaaf, the head of the Danish intelligence, would have been sacked, or uh, most of the people who've been involved in this job would all have been sacked. So obviously, I understand the Americans protecting their colleagues by saying, you know what, more than it was a parallel mission, it wasn't you. 
even though we know it's very clear that it was it was my work. And you know what? I understand why they did it because they they want to protect each other. That's what they do. I'm I was just very disappointed that they would that they were able to do it. I mean, I have put my life in risk several times to uh, to to track down Anwar, you know. Uh, uh, so you know, and I have spent the two hundred fifty thousand on on the cover company in in Africa, and uh, just to to work, you know, for the intelligence. I've done a lot of things, you know. Uh, took a lot of initiatives for myself and spent a lot of resources and time on it, and then suddenly it just uh, you standing there with no job because I have managed to to get the the prime target, and then suddenly I have no job. So you recorded your last meeting with your CIA case officer, and you went public. I, I did. Um, see, see, the the recording was not really intended to be for any uh, newspapers. The, my recording was so I can sit down with the Danish intelligence and show them what Michael said from the CIA. Uh, and I was so hurt because when I had the meeting with the CIA, the Danish intelligence was actually turning their back to me. They didn't want to sit in the same meeting. Uh, and I went up and I had a meeting with Michael. And Michael was a new agent. I never met him before. And he had to explain to me all kinds of stuff that he didn't know about. And um, and you know what? Uh, that recording came to my benefit. You know, uh, the benefit was that I could prove that I have been part of this mission, and he even admitted that I played the highest role, but it wasn't me who kicked the ball in. So, you know. Well, when all is said and done, two final questions. When all is said and done, are you afraid of retribution from Al Qaeda? <clears throat> I know as a fact that they are planning to kill me. Um, but you know what? Uh, I, I'm able to take that risk. Don't forget that by me going public, uh, I'm sending a strong message to Al-Qaeda saying that, hey, I infiltrated you guys, so all all the plans that we've been talking about, the missions, and, you know, actually we bombed them back to the Stone Age. They, they will never be able to trust anyone amongst themselves. I mean, I was one of the most highest respected and, and trusted people, uh, person within that organization, with these people, and, I, and if, if I infiltrated them, who else would? I'm a white dude. Imagine the own Arab guys. I mean, there's no way they they, they will trust each other. Uh, so yeah, uh, in that sense, uh, it's okay. It was the risk, but it wasn't the reason why. One, there was one of the reasons, but the other reason was also that I feel my life was in danger, but not from the Al Qaeda. It was in danger from the intelligence uh, because uh, one of their own agents had told me my life could, was in danger. Yeah. Who, who do you think among the intelligence services might pose a threat to you? Well, I went to China uh, to speak to uh, one of CIA's own, own agents, uh, and that was in 2012, uh, actually in May. Uh, I went to China, and uh, their own agent warned me not to return back to Yemen again because there was plans of having me assassinated. Um, and you know what? I don't know if that is true. I can't, I can't verify it, but me as a, just a normal person, and I had just been working for this with good intentions, I didn't have any bad intentions, even against our own intelligence, uh, so I, I thought, it's time to call it off, you know. Last question, if you had it to do all over again, would you still cooperate with Western intelligence against Al-Qaeda? Of course I would. I, I mean, I have to say that 
from amongst all the people I made in the intelligence services, whether it be the Danish or the British or Americans, I have only met very, very good people. They are all of them, with no exceptions, are very dedicated people. They're loyal to the governments. They are very good at what they're doing. Uh, the only regret I have is that I didn't finish my mission last year and I've been able to track down uh, uh, um, Nasr Wahishi, um, Abu Basir in Yemen, and also Ibrahim al Asiri. That really, really bothers me. But besides that, I think uh, I, 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 I own a big gratitude to the governments. They might have cheated me for my money, but you know what? It's not the end of the world. We have stopped a lot of people being killed. So, so that's fine. That, that must be a good feeling right there. And you know, my mom, my mom in Denmark, she, my mom in Denmark, she was, uh, she hadn't read, even read my book. And I asked her, Mom, have you read my book? You know, Storm the Danish Al Qaeda in, in uh, the Danish agent in Al Qaeda. I said, Mom, have you read my book? She said, No, I couldn't because I feel bad. I feel guilty that I didn't give you a good upbringing, that that's why you became what you are now. I told her, Mom, think about it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change for a million dollars because. Because I have been able to save civilian people, I saved their lives. I've infiltrated Al Qaeda. I have helped Americans and the Western governments to to put people in prison who have bad intentions or even had them killed. You know, so I am very proud of what you have done to me. So, <laughs> so that's quite good for me. I'm happy about this. Well, Morton Storm, thank you so much for sharing this very personal and fascinating story with us. There's. There's not a lot of people who have had the, the experiences in the life you, you've had, so I, I appreciate you uh, letting us all uh, have a look at, at, at your experience and your career. Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you for the Washington Spy Museum. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.